we had met about a year previously, and that's when we formulated our mission to reach people for Christ, give them a place to belong, and help them grow in their faith. And we put our, our vision into concrete language to be and increasingly become a family of families. We talked about our core values of being centered on the Word of God, caring for each other, and leaving a legacy of faith. And this was to, now that that's established, and now that that language is becoming familiar to most of our of our people, to say, okay, what's the strategy for moving forward? And in the process, we realized, you know, Disciples reach people for Christ, give them a place to belong, and help them grow in their faith. Disciples center their lives on God's word, care for each other, and leave a legacy of faith. Discipleship is the one thing that changes everything. That's our bottom line today. Discipleship is the one thing that changes everything. It's the one thing for you that can change everything for you, and it's the one thing for us that can literally change everything for us. So we are focusing on discipleship. We are focusing every sermon series will be directly related to that, linked to the idea of discipleship and how we grow as disciples. Discipleship is our strategy, that making disciples who make disciples will help us accomplish everything that God has set before us. It will be the linchpin that accomplishes everything that God has set before us. So today we're launching this It's Time to Grow series with the idea that it's time to grow deeper through discipleship. It's time for you to grow deeper through discipleship. It's time for me to grow deeper through discipleship. And it's time for us to grow deeper through discipleship. So it seems like before we get too far downstream, we ought to talk about what a disciple is, because I would imagine there are a number of different things that come to mind when you hear the word disciple. Maybe you think of 12 men following Jesus around, and those were the disciples, or maybe you think of a Bible study or a Sunday school class, or a number of different things can come to mind. Maybe you were one who was formally discipled by another person, or maybe you're one who does that for other people. But when we use the word disciple, and we we talk about discipleship, we are, we are going to be focusing on this idea of someone who adheres to Christ's teaching and lifestyle. Someone who adheres to Christ's teaching and lifestyle. And that's rooted in the actual original language word for disciple. It's this Greek word, mathetes, and that's the word that when you see it in your New Testament, through the Gospels and where it appears in Paul's letters, and we talk about being a disciple of Christ, we're talking about being a follower, a learner, an apprentice of Christ. And that word apprentice is probably the one that resonates the most deeply with me. You see, my dad's an electrician. He's a journeyman electrician uh, for most of his career. And if you understand how most of the trades work, you start out as an apprentice in that trade. And that means you're assigned to a master. A master electrician can look over the work of an apprentice. They can assign them to a journeyman to learn from them, but keeps an eye on that apprentice until they've gotten through enough time that they can move up to journeyman level, and eventually they can move up to master level. So that works with uh, electricians and plumbers and other tradesmen. And the apprentice literally does what the journeyman or master is doing. They watch as the person does it, and then they try it, and they practice, and they talk about it. And eventually, they come to a point where they're now responsible for somebody else's development. And it's a great picture for what discipleship really is intended to be. In fact, if you look at that Greek word mathetes, it's a combination of two Greek words. One means to learn, and the other means 
to reflect. One means to learn and the other means to reflect. What a beautiful word picture of discipleship. To learn from Jesus and to reflect Jesus to those around us. To learn from him and then to reflect him to the world around us. To learn from him and then to teach someone else how to learn from him and bring others into the fold. So when we talk about one who adheres to Christ's teaching and lifestyle, we don't stop with just the teaching because Christ modeled how to live. He modeled how to disciple. In fact, one book that I've read kind of points out the fact that we hear about the 12 disciples. We hear about Peter, James, and John going off with Christ a number of different times for special training, special experiences. They go up on the Sermon on the Mount. They come with him deeper into the Garden of Gethsemane. And there was this hypothesis that perhaps Jesus was directly discipling Peter, James, and John. And Peter, James, and John each had three of the other nine disciples. And so that's why there were 12 disciples. So he was modeling how to make disciples as he was doing his ministry. And so making disciples is a critical component of being a disciple, that as we learn from Christ, we must then reflect him to the world around him. So when we talk about disciple, that's what we're talking about, somebody who adheres to Christ's teaching and his lifestyle. And Christ's lifestyle was all about making disciples. So we'll define that as that's a disciple. Discipleship is the process of becoming and making disciples of Christ. So when we talk about discipleship, that's what we're talking about. Now, sometimes that includes a Sunday school class. Sometimes that includes a discipleship group. Sometimes that includes a small group. But they're not limited to those venues. They're not limited to those vehicles. Those are parts of discipleship for some people. But we're going to find that one of the main and the most critical components is the personal spiritual practices of the disciple. What keeps us tethered to Christ on a daily basis? And so as I've said before, and you'll hear it many times today, discipleship is the one thing that changes everything. When we become serious about adhering to Christ's teachings and lifestyle, it changes everything. And he intends to change everything about us. I I came across a quote from Paul David Tripp, who I quote frequently, uh, but I wanted to share this with you because I think it fits, and I think it's particularly pertinent at the beginning of the year. How many of you made a New Year's resolution? Only three. Wow. Is that so last decade? Or were some people too cool to raise their hands? Did anybody else make a New Year's resolution, or is it just me and those other three people? Ryan made one. All right. Well, if you haven't, it's not too late. You can start a New Year's resolution today if you'd like to. In fact, I might encourage you to do that. But keep this in mind as you think about making a New Year's resolution. Here's what Paul David Tripp says. He says, our problem is that we're too easily satisfied. So maybe Mick Jagger had it wrong. We're too easily satisfied. We're satisfied with a little bit of theological knowledge, a degree of biblical literacy, occasional moments of ministry, and a measure of personal spiritual growth. Sadly, we're satisfied with being a little bit better when God's goal is that we would be completely remolded into his image. In fact, it's even worse than that. Not only are we too easily satisfied, willing to stop before the Redeemer's work is fully accomplished in us, we are all very easily distracted. I get an amen on that. We get distracted by the temporary glories of the created world, and we actually begin to think that they can bring us satisfaction here. So we quit pressing on
because our Savior is pressing on. While he in glorious dissatisfaction still works to redeem us from us, we're out chasing other lovers. We begin to believe that they can do for us what only he can do, and we begin to invest our time, our energy, and our hope in things that can never deliver. So I would encourage you this year to not be too easily satisfied in your spiritual growth, to not settle for anything less than what Jesus Christ wants for you. Each week in this series, we will at least touch on this passage from Acts chapter 2, which is very familiar if you've been in church for a long time. It's the sort of the genesis of the church, and we'll touch on it because this is where we find the five biblical purposes of the early church and the five biblical purposes of every church since then. And so if you want to turn to page 1694, we'll look at this last paragraph of Acts chapter 2. And as we do that, uh, you may be reminded of a series we did last year, uh, the Devoted series, where we looked at this Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and, and four different things that come out of that. And if you weren't a part of the church then, you can always go back and listen to those. Um, but in this section right here where we are, are looking at at the last paragraph of Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit has just come upon the early church on the day of Pentecost. And so uh, it's been about 50 days after the resurrection, and the Spirit came and tongues of fire, and they were speaking in different languages, and it was quite an event. And immediately following that event, Peter gets up and preaches a sermon. Peter, who denied Jesus three times. Peter, ready, fire, aim, Peter, who was always jumping the end, gets up and preaches a real doozy of a sermon. And we're told that 3,000 people come to faith in Christ. Commentators would tell us that's probably 3,000 men, which means that 3,000 households came to Christ, which means that there was a megachurch in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Think about that. And then we get this report about this early church in verses 42 through 47. They, these early disciples, these followers, these learners, these apprentices of Christ, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, and praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And so you see the five biblical purposes represented in that, and you see the outcome of that way of life. The Lord added daily to their number those who were being saved. So today as we look at discipleship, we'll look at verse 42 and 46 specifically. 42 again was where the devoted series was rooted, and you can see that there are four things represented there in verse 42, and these would all be marks of a disciple. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now, we're doing all those things right here today. We're experiencing, we're, we're looking at the teachings of the apostles. We're looking at the teachings of scriptures. Are we devoting ourselves to them? That's the question. That's where the rubber meets the road. Are we, are we devoting ourselves to them or are we just considering them? They also devoted themselves to fellowship, to coming together and experiencing life together. 
They devoted themselves to prayer and they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper, the the participation together in that. And so we see that in verse 42. We see their devotion and we see in verse 46 that they met daily in the temple courts. They met daily. Wait, Pastor, I thought we only came to church on Sunday. Well, no, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to fellowship. They were devoted to the breaking of bread and to prayer. They met daily. It wasn't a Sunday activity for them. It was a lifestyle. Remember, it's, it's taking on the lifestyle of Christ. They met daily and studied, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, devoted themselves to the fellowship that they enjoyed, devoted themselves to prayer and to the breaking of bread. And so this was not just an event in their weekly calendar. It was a lifestyle for them. It was something that they did every day. They weren't consumers. They were contributors. They were, they were there, not just for what they could receive, but for what they could give. And so you could say there's a differentiation between a churchgoer and a disciple. A churchgoer shows up on Sunday for what they can get. A disciple is a follower a learner, an apprentice of Christ who is following his teachings and adapting, adopting to his lifestyle. And I believe that the church, the capital C church, made it out of the first century because of disciples. Not because of churchgoers, not because of consumers, not because of people who made an event for an hour on their calendar, but for people who were passionately following after the way of Christ, taking his lifestyle on and making it their lifestyle. That's why we have a church today. That's why there is a Linwood Wesleyan church right here in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, 2,000 years later, because discipleship was the one thing that changed everything. It changed the world. And there are over 2 billion followers of Christ today because of disciples who took the message, who multiplied and made disciples, who made disciples, who made disciples. And we see a lot of this rooted in another passage of Scripture where John uh, records for us Jesus' final teachings in John 14, 15, and 16 to the disciples. And right in the heart of that, in John 15, verses 1 through 6, we really get a glimpse into the heart of discipleship. So if discipleship is the one thing that changes everything, John 15, 1 through 6 could be a passage that gives us the real heart, the real essence of discipleship. So I would encourage you to look there with me, page 1676. We're going to spend the rest of the sermon uh, there and really walk through this passage and make sure we understand everything that Jesus is saying. So uh, over on John 15, verse 1, he says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. As we go through this, you need to understand the composition or the structure of a grapevine. There's a vine that's the part that comes up out of the ground. It's the vertical part. And then he's also going to talk about branches. The branches are the part that go out laterally, and they're tied up on trellises so that they can move out, and then the fruit hangs down from the branches, okay? I always thought it was vines that went across, but they say, no, it's actually the vine is what comes up out of the ground, and the branches are what goes out, and the fruit hangs from the branches. He's saying, I am the true vine. And so if there's a true vine, then there are false vines, aren't there? There are false sources. There are false models that we can follow. But Jesus is identifying himself as the true vine and saying God is the gardener. God is the vine dresser in some translations. 
He is the one who comes along. He's the gardener, not a genie. Sometimes we, we get this idea that we just need to rub the lamp and, and make our prayer requests and God will, like a genie in a bottle, sort of deliver us everything that we need. He's the builder, not the butler. He's not the one that runs around heaven, you know, trying to get us the new car and the new house and the nicer vacation and all these other things. He intends to be more like a gardener. And we'll see what that looks like as Jesus continues in this passage. He says in verse 2, He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. How many of you are expecting to hear that? Wait, 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 wait. The gardener cuts branches off? <laughs> Why would he do that? Well, there's a couple of, of nuances to the text here, and I was uh, found that Bruce Wilkinson, when he teaches on this in a little book called Secrets of the Vine, if you're interested in this, I would highly, highly recommend it to you. He really looks at this idea of, of God or the gardener cutting off these branches. He says it's a Greek word, airo, A-I-R-O, and it can mean to cut off, but it can also mean to take up or to lift up. And he paints a picture of God or a skillful gardener coming along and finding damaged branches that are down on the ground that are covered in mold and mildew and not able to grow and bear fruit and lifting them up where they can be clean, where they can receive oxygen. And this fits so much better with verse 3 when he says in verse 3, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. So there's, there's two different ways to understand how this Verse 2 could be interpreted, could be cutting off, or it could be taking up and cleaning and restoring and bringing back to fruit-bearing ability. And he highly favors the second reading. That's the reading that I favor. I think it fits better with verse 3, this idea that you're already clean. He hasn't talked about being clean before. So the, the reading of Iro in verse 2, to take up, to clean, to restore makes a lot more sense. And that's the one I want you to consider that if you have fallen away, if you have not been focused on your discipleship, if you have not been following Christ, being an active participant in his work, being an active apprentice of him, that he wants to lift you up. He wants to raise you up. He wants to clean you off. He wants to put you in a, in a situation, in an environment where you can bear fruit. It also makes more sense with the second half of verse 2 where it talks about pruning. So if you're not down on the ground, not bearing fruit, you're already up, you're already bearing fruit, he says in verse 2, he's going to prune you so that you can bear more fruit. Again, this is not what we want this passage to say. We don't want to be talking about pruning. We don't want the, the pruning shears to come out. Pruning is painful. Pruning hurts when something that is a part of us gets cut out of us. But the reason that he prunes us, the purpose behind the pruning is more fruit. We're told if you read in the rest of this passage, which I would encourage you to do this week, we only have time to, to study five or six verses of it. If you read the rest of the passage, you find that his purpose in pruning is that we would bear fruit, bear much fruit, bear fruit that remains, fruit that lasts, fruit that reproduces itself. And so he prunes us because he is not after foliage, he's after fruit. He prunes us because he cares far more about our character than he does our comfort. And so he does not just want a big bushy grapevine with no fruit, he wants a grapevine heavy 
with fruit. And I don't know if you've ever been to wine country or been to a, a, a vineyard. We were able to go through California and up through wine country, and we couldn't believe how, how few leaves there are on the top of the branches as they stretch out across the trellises that they're tied to in these huge clumps and cr- clusters of grapes. You see, a skillful gardener, a skillful vine dresser knows exactly where to prune, and what to clip off, and what is just going to grow more leaves compared to what's actually going to bear fruit, to increase the yield of the fruit. And so that's his purpose in pruning. And I don't think he takes any delight in pruning, but he does take delight in the produce that comes from that pruning. And if you've been experiencing that, it happens in our individual lives. It happens in churches. Sometimes people are gone from a church and there's really no explanation. And oftentimes I'll feel the spirit just say, hey, man, it's okay. I'm pruning. It doesn't, it doesn't look like it right now, but there's a purpose to this. Be patient. The next season there'll be a higher yield as, as the pruning takes and has its effect. Then in verse 3, we see that, that he takes up that, that emphasis of taking up. You are already clean. He's taken us up. He's cleaned us because of the word I've spoken to you. He's speaking to the disciples right now. They've heard the word. They are followers. They are apprentices of him. If this reflects uh, for you, for your life, that you're a, a follower of Christ, you're diligently pursuing after him, taking on his teachings and his lifestyles, then he's saying basically, you're clean. I've already... He doesn't say he's not going to prune you, but he is saying that you have been taken up, you have been cleansed, you are capable of bearing fruit. Now, verse 4 is the heart of this passage, which is the heart of discipleship. And in verse 4, he says, Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Remaining in Christ, abiding in Christ, is the heart of discipleship. It's that constant relationship with him where you're always coming back to him. You're always seeking to do things as he would if he were you. Learning from his word what that means. Learning through fellowship and through worship and through prayer and through study what it means to be like Christ in this world, to abide in him. Not to pay him weekly visits, but to abide in him, to stay in him. And this is the heart of discipleship. This is the one thing that changes everything, is abiding in Christ. And so you might be asking, well, how do we do that? How do we remain in Christ? How do we abide in Christ? What does it look like tangibly, Pastor? Tell me, and I will do it. Well, I believe that at the heart of abiding in Christ are your personal, spiritual Practices. What are the things that you're doing daily throughout the day that are keeping you tethered to Christ? Are you spending time in his word every day? Are you spending time in prayer every day? Are you serving him on a regular basis? You see, when we serve Christ and we step out of our comfort zone and we step out of what is comfortable and familiar to us, we rely upon him in a different way. When we step out and do things that challenge us and stretch us, then we rely upon Jesus and we abide in him in those moments in a different way. 
And so we're actually going to uh, look very deeply into our personal spiritual practices in our next series that we'll launch kind of at the end of February. It's called Disciplines for Disciples. And we will look at the different spiritual disciplines and how you can build those more intentionally and more fruitfully into your daily and weekly rhythms of life. But for now, I'll give you just an overview that there are at least 12 spiritual disciplines or personal spiritual practices that have been uh, studied and applied throughout the ages. There's a wonderful book called Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster. If you want to go deeper into this, he looks at each of them. He actually categorizes them into three different categories. He has what's called an inward disciplines. There are four of those. There's outward disciplines, And then there are corporate disciplines, things that we do together. So for inward disciplines, he's talking about reading and studying your Bible. He's talking about prayer. He's talking about meditation. And not like sitting with your legs crossed and your fingers out in a weird position and humming, but but actually meditating on God's word, picking a phrase, picking a word, picking a lyric from a hymn and meditating and reflecting and asking God to bring that to life in you, that type of meditation and fasting. These are inward spiritual disciplines. Then there are outward spiritual disciplines like living a life of simplicity, not overcomplicating our lives, spending time in solitude, spending time in submission to others, and spending time in service. Solitude, simplicity, submission, and service. These are outward. These are things that are visible to the world around us. And finally, corporate disciplines or spiritual practices, like confessing our sins to one another. If you grew up in a Catholic tradition, you understand that confession is built into the weekly rhythm. I think that's one of the departures uh, that, that exist in most of the Protestant denominations or expressions of the faith is that there's not a formal time for confession, and yet confession is incredibly powerful. And James writes that we confess our sins to one another that we may be healed. Did you catch that? That when we confess our sins to one another, we find healing. And that's one of the great strengths of of Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous and all the different 12-step programs is that they have confession in the very fabric of the process, that you confess your sins to one another, you confess your shortcomings to one another, and you find healing. Other Other corporate disciplines or corporate practices are worship and guidance, getting counsel from one another, and celebration, that when we celebrate together, when we worship together, something changes in us, and we become more like Christ. But it's very, very clear, wherever you are in spiritual disciplines, wherever you are on the inward or the outward or the corporate disciplines, it's crystal clear that the the fruit of abiding in Christ is that we bear fruit for Jesus, that we don't just feel more secure and comfortable in and of ourselves, but that we bear fruit for him, that we make disciples who make disciples, that we serve him in his name, that we reach out in his name, that we welcome the outsiders in in his name because we are abiding in him and we live our lives as he would if he were us. And so as we abide in him, we are discipled and we disciple others. That there's a, there's a cyclical relationship there. That we are not meant to be cisterns that water flows into and nothing flows out of. We are meant to be rivers that God's grace flows into our lives and out through our lives. That we receive salvation and redemption and reconciliation through God. And then we bring that to somebody else. That he'll put people in our path that 
are there for us to share the gospel with, for us to disciple. And sometimes we get freaked out on that. We're like, well, I'm not, I'm not ready to disciple somebody, Pastor Mark. And I'm like, well, if you are a disciple of Jesus, then you're ready to start discipling someone, and you will grow immeasurably as a disciple as you disciple someone else. And I think sometimes our mindset is wrong. We think that if this disciple comes up to us, we have to turn them into a fully mature disciple as if God the Father and the Holy Spirit and Jesus didn't have a part to play like it's all on us to produce mature disciples. And that's not the case. What God asks us to do is that disciple comes to you, as that person gets laid upon your heart, and God says, I think you have a contribution to make to their life. He asks you to empty your cup into theirs, not to fill their cup. Think about it. Is any person in this room, can you say there's one person, and that's the only person that has made a spiritual contribution to my life? Of course not. Whether you grew up in the church and you had parents and Sunday school teachers and and mentors and coaches and, and different people that poured into your life, it's a combination. It's not one person completely filling your cup to the brim. It's all these different people. A couple of weeks ago, I listed half a dozen men who had made a significant contribution into my life. I could say that three or four of them were disciplers of me, but not one single individual who discipled me. And as I have discipled other people, they've made tremendous contributions into my life as they have grappled with the questions of the faith, as they have taken their steps forward, as they have taken their setbacks. And as we get intentional about discipling others, we grow as disciples. And we are remaining in Christ. And as we abide in him, we have something to share. We always have fresh bread. You know the smell of fresh bread? You walk into a place like Panera or something like that and you can smell it? That should be sort of like the aroma that we go through life with as disciples of Christ, that there's fresh bread and the people are like, smell fresh bread. And you've been abiding in Christ and you've been spending time in your personal spiritual practices and you've been serving and you've been in corporate worship and you say, yes, I have something to share with you or I can pray with you or I can come alongside you or we could meet on a regular basis and we could read scripture together and we could do this together and discipleship is taking place. He continues in verse 5, reminding us, I am the vine. As we're abiding in him, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. It doesn't say that he should. It doesn't say that he ought to. It doesn't say that he might. If you're abiding in Christ, you'll be bearing fruit for Christ. There's a, there's a cause and effect relationship here. If you remain in him and he remains in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. And I've hit on this before. This is one of these essential things to understand, that apart from Christ, you can do nothing and be okay with it. But if you are abiding in Christ, and he's abiding in you, you can't do nothing. You won't be able to. You will have to go and bear fruit because he is in you, and he is all about bearing fruit, and he is all about making disciples who make disciples. If he's in you, and you're in him, you can't do nothing. And you can't be unfruitful because he is abiding in you and he wants to bear fruit, bear much fruit, bear fruit that will last. And finally, verse 6, I almost stopped at verse 5, and you'll see why when we read verse 6. If anyone does not remain in me, he's like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. That verse scares the hell out of me. 
And I don't use that phrase lightly. And I hope that that verse scares the hell out of you and out of us. And I hope it scares the easy satisfaction out of us. And I hope it scares the small dreams and the distractions and the apathy and the laziness right out of us. This idea that there are consequences, serious consequences, to choosing not to remain in Christ, to rejecting him and walking away from him. There are serious consequences to this. And I know for a fact that this brings him no delight. He doesn't like gathering up these sticks and throwing them into the fire. And he doesn't want you to be one of those. But there is a part that we play in pursuing him, in abiding in him, in staying close to him, in spending time with him on a regular basis so that we do not fall away, so that we do not end up in verse 6. But I also want to point out that this idea of pruning that we've talked about, pruning is cutting off living parts of a branch in order for that branch to bear more fruit. There's pruning in this passage, and there is cutting off in this passage. You're going to get snipped if you do and snipped if you don't. Okay, so don't think that if you just abide in Christ, you'll never go through any pruning. The shears will never come out for you because you're abiding in Christ. He has promised that he will prune us so that we can bear even more fruit. And when the pruning shears come out, you don't have to shy away from them. You don't have to cower back from them. You can know that with each round of pruning comes a promise. And with each round of pruning comes a provision that there will be greater production in your spiritual life and that there will be greater glory to God. One last thing that I don't want you to miss on this whole vine and branches and fruit is that the vine is the vertical part And the branches are the horizontal part. That we are the arms of Christ that reach out. That we form this cross as we come up and we abide in the vine, the vertical element. Heaven coming to earth in the person of Christ. And we abide in him. Then we are the hands and feet of Christ that go out into this world to meet the needs of a lost and dying world. And it matters. It matters a great deal. So that's just sort of the first chunk of this really important passage. I would strongly, strongly encourage you to read the rest of John 15 with a good study Bible. There are several that are available online if you don't have a good study Bible, but read through that. Read through the notes. Pray through that. Say, God, what are you saying to me? What do you want me to be doing as a result of it? And read through that today or this week sometime. But I've told you what I want you to know this morning. I've, I've told you that discipleship is the one thing that changes everything. I've told you about the early church and what were the hallmarks of the early church. I've told you about pruning and about the shears coming out and about abiding in Christ. I've told you what I want you to know, and now I'm going to tell you what I want you to do. Because I want you to do something. Every time I get up to preach, I want you to do something with what you have Received. Now, I don't always know what that is, so often I'll give you multiple options, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to take your next step in discipleship. I believe that every single person in this room has a next step in their discipleship. I don't know what that is because you're all in different places with Jesus, but I want you to take your next step with him. If you are not spending time in God's word on a daily basis, I believe that's your first step in discipleship. If you're not reading your Bible every day and reflecting on it 
and asking God to speak to you through it, then I want you to start there. I think that's your first step. We've got a phenomenal tool wherever you are in this process that we want to put into your hands this week. It's called a Banding Together Journal. It's got a reading plan and an outline for meetings if you want to get together with some people. And we can all be reading the same scriptures together this year. If you will just read one or two chapters of scripture a day, reflect on it, and ask God to speak to you, and then make a few notes of what he shows you through scripture, I think this would catapult your spiritual growth in 2020. If you're not already doing this, this is step one. This is something that I really, really want you to do. You can pick these up on your way out. They cost us a little over $4 a piece. If you can drop a $5 bill in the basket, great. If you can't, don't let that be a a barrier. If you can drop a 20 in and cover somebody else's, great. But pick one of these up. Start reading the scriptures. Once you get past the reading plan, you'll find that there's a place where you can jot down a few notes. And so you can write down your scripture address, and then it follows an acronym, SOAP, S-O-A-P. You should use SOAP every day, right? It's a joke. Pastoral humor. It's not an oxymoron. You should use SOAP every day. We try to convince our teenage sons of this. You should use SOAP every day, but the SOAP that I'm talking about with the journal is Scripture Observation Application Prayer. You write out one or two verses of the Scripture. You write out an observation that you had as you read that, something that stood out to you. I'd never noticed that before. I wonder what he meant when he said this. I wonder why they said that instead of that. Write out an observation. Right on application. I think that applies to my life in this way. I think that speaks into this relationship, that problem, this financial difficulty, whatever the case may be, and a prayer. This can be one sentence each. It could be one page each. You get to decide if this takes 10 minutes or an hour. But the power comes in the regular application of Scripture to your life, spending time in God's Word. So I really, really, really want you to grab one of these on the way out if you don't already have a way of journaling. I'm a journaler. I journal all the time. I journal on a regular basis almost every day. I'm going to add this to what I already do. This will be the daily portion, and then as I have opportunity throughout the week, I'm going to journal about other things as well. But I would encourage you to make this a practice. It's early in the year. You can build this into your life you can become a part of that. We're also going to be launching a Facebook group, a Banding Together for Linwood Facebook group. So if you're reading these scriptures together, if you have questions, you can put them up on the group. People can share resources. People can encourage each other. The other thing that I want to tell you about this, if you decide to do this and to jump in with this, something I can promise you is going to happen that first week. And you're going to oversleep or you're going to have a kid go into the ER or you're going to have some major challenge that's going to come. Don't feel like this is homework, and now I missed three days, so now I've got to do all three days at once just to catch up. Go ahead and let a day pass. Maybe read the scripture, but not necessarily feel like you have to do the soap journaling part of it. This is not meant to be a burden, but this is meant to be a way of abiding in Christ and him abiding in you. So as often as you want him abiding in you, go ahead and do this as a way to facilitate that happening. Now, some of you already have scripture and prayer and meditation as a part of your regular routine. You're doing that. If that's you and you have that built in, I want you to encourage you to pick one of these up and use it as a way to start a group where you will meet with two or three other people 
and you'll be reading the same scriptures together, and you'll be talking about them. One of the other tools in here is a discipleship group agenda. So right on the inside of the cover is a way to guide you through an hour, hour and a half long meeting that you could have with two or three other people. Maybe they're already believers. Maybe they're a new believer. Maybe they're somebody who's just exploring their faith. You could read the scriptures together. You could pray together. You could hold each other accountable, and you could pray for the lost together. If you want to be a part of a discipleship group and you were just a little apprehensive about that, we're going to offer some disciple maker trainings where you can come and get equipped to go out and start a group to begin making disciples. If you say this is the one thing that Jesus told us to do, to go into all the world and to make disciples of all nations, I want to be a part of that, I want to get on that, then you can be trained and you can begin and start making disciples. Start meeting weekly with a group. And the last option, just do whatever the Holy Spirit is telling you to do right now. If you feel like God is saying, call somebody. If you feel like God is saying, share this message with somebody. If you feel like God is saying to do this or do that, then do that. Be obedient. Let us be a people in 2020 that are focused on abiding in Christ, that are focused on discipleship, that are focused on making disciples. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your word, and we're so grateful that you are not easily satisfied with us, that you aim for total transformation of our lives, to be conformed to your image, Lord. Help us, renew us, renew our minds, renew our hearts, renew our spirits. Energize us, Lord. Some of us are weary. Some of us feel a little wrung out by 2019, and yet We believe that you are a God of newness and a God of new things. And so we ask you to do something new in us, to do something new through us. And I pray that you will touch each person's heart and that you will show them what you want them to do and that we will be a people who are quick to obey, that every single person in this room will take their next step in discipleship today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.